Welcome to the All Saints Anglican Cathedral Sermon Podcast. For more information about this resource and many more, visit allsaintsamesbury.org. Enjoy! O Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. In the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. You can be seated, and I I want to, um, to have us begin by imagining that we are in this story as it is unfolding. And just like everyone else in this situation, we have limited knowledge about what's going on. Just like the master of the banquet has no idea what's going on outside with those huge jars or pots full or being filled with water. Can you imagine uh, kind of your, your standard garbage can and having, I mean seriously, 32 gallon critter, six of them up here already half empty with kind of nasty hand washed dishes have been uh, messed around in water. The servants know what's not there and what's there but they don't know what's going on inside the banquet. Mary has somehow gotten word that the wine is gone or about to be gone. There is a looming social crisis, and as you uh, might know, in this culture, uh, if you're, you're hosting a wedding, it's not simply a, an occasion of ordinary hospitality, it is an occasion of covenantal union, not simply between one man and one woman, but between one family network and another family network. These two households, extended families, are being joined in covenant. And so if there is a a social faux pas, It's a big deal. Only it's not simply a faux pas in the customs and law of that time. If things went badly at a wedding, one family could sue the other family. In other words, running out of wine was not simply an embarrassment, it was a deep shame. And it was not simply a deep shame It was a potential legal and financial catastrophe. Now, let's imagine that we all know that. But not all of us know that we're running out of wine. The guests have had plenty of good wine, or maybe not so good wine. But, you know, maybe the first stuff was pretty good, and and some of the guests are pleasantly buzzed, some of the guests are grumpy because they're always grumpy and some of the guests are uh, having an extraordinary time catching up with people they haven't seen for a long time 
and so on and so forth. And, of course, the couple, the blissful couple, is probably blissfully ignorant of what's going on behind the scenes, but the parents are probably going off their nut about the possibilities ahead. The disciples have shown up, fresh off of an encounter with Jesus, with the witness of John the Baptist saying, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one who is the Messiah, the one revealed, the one who I have been waiting my entire life, and the whole reason I came baptizing was so that the one who sent me would point out the Messiah. So, Andrew and Philip have followed Jesus. They're impressed. They've both gotten a brother, in Andrew's case, and a good friend, in Philip's case, and they've said, we think we've got the Messiah. And then Jesus pulls one on them and says something prophetic about Nathaniel that Jesus has no way of knowing. Nathaniel's mind is blown. He thinks we found the Messiah. And so on the third day, our passage says, chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day, the third day of what? The third day after John pointed Jesus out. They're back home, back in Galilee. And could it be that they are anticipating the big breakout? Messiah is going to stun everyone. And what's Jesus doing? He's just hanging around with people at a party incognito. There's a lot of things we don't know in addition to this. We don't know when the water turned into wine. We don't know if the water turned into wine after the servants dipped it out and they thought it was water. And it could be that they're walking along thinking, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, this is not a fun practical joke. I'm taking water to the head steward. Does Jesus mean this to be a signal of a kind of insult? A kind of party stopper? Messianic party pooping? What's going on here? Do they, maybe it's already, you know, they're pouring it in, they dip it out and they go, this is incredible! And they're going along excited. We frankly don't know. All we know is that they knew where whatever the guy drank came from. That's what they knew, and nobody else did. Except, at the end, the disciples. And it could very well be that in order to preserve the family honor, the servants never told a soul. And the only people who ever knew were the servants and Mary and the disciples. And us. So let's put ourselves in that situation. I want you to imagine with me what might people have been thinking as the story unfolds. Well, we've already talked about the disciples maybe in expectation that Jesus is going to have a breakout day. The party goes on. Maybe there's a little there's a little disappointment for him. He's just hanging around. Well, as things go along, what about the family? 
the dad, the mom, the extended family, and news becomes clear to them, uh-oh, we're running out of wine. Oh, no. We underestimated. Oh, no. They're drinking way more. Oh, no. Those disciples that Jesus brought along have really messed up our calculation, and they're, like, drinking way too much. Expectations. And then Mary comes to Jesus. They have no wine. Hint, hint. Come on, Messiah, son. We know what you can do. And nothing happens. Or maybe something does happen. And then in this weird moment where Jesus says, after the servants have overheard the very clear crisis, there is no wine, and Jesus says, fill the jars with water. Well, that's a transparent strategy. What are you doing? What, do you want people to wash up on their way out? Um, Are you planning a really weird practical joke? Are you creating extra work for us so that you'll buy some time so somebody else can run and get some wine? Ah, Why are we doing this? Expectations. And then he says, draw some out and take it to the steward. And who knows what's going to happen now. Do they go in this... Uh, flabbergasted surprise and awe? Do they go in fear and trembling? Do they go out of just kind of abject duty? Well, I'm just doing my job. I hope they don't kill the messenger. And then the bridegroom. Because this this master of the banquet turns uh, to the bridegroom and he calls him aside right he doesn't shout this out publicly oh you've reserved the best to last this is kind of one of those uh dude you kind of get didn't get the social memo moments i mean really you should have been serving this first but this is really amazing stuff and what is the bridegroom thinking what amazing stuff I thought I served the best wine. Did they get it wrong? What's going on? Do you see what happens when we start imagining what's going on in the Scripture? It can enliven our own hearts to how expectations are working. Because what's going on is that what we expect shapes what we experience. The master of ceremonies expected the best to be served first, and what he experienced was surprise. Only because he was not expecting awesome wine this late in the party. So it was surprise for him. The servants are experiencing confusion at best, irritation at worst, excitement if they were really 
in on the messianic secret. And what they experienced, the awe of wine coming out of a purifying jar, their expectations shaped their experience. They would not have been blown away if they already knew Jesus was going to do this. Okay, so here's the question. What do you expect of Jesus? What do you expect of others? Because your expectations are shaping how you experience Jesus and how you experience other people. Do you expect Jesus and others to embarrass you or to honor you? or to disappoint you, or to satisfy you, or to impose on you, or to serve you? Do you expect Jesus or others to ignore you, or to scrutinize you, or to threaten you, or to encourage you, to help you, to hinder, to protect, to harm, to cover, to expose, to provide, to take away, to surprise, to bore? Because your expectations of Jesus and others is going to shape how you experience that interaction. So what the banquet master experienced was a pleasant, if odd, surprise. What the servants experienced was probably a series of emotions, first of dread of the impending shame, then of frustration at seemingly pointless work, and then anxiety about an unknown and unpredictable reaction, and then probably glee at being in on the surprise and some degree of awe about the joy-bringing power that they had witnessed, all because their expectations kept getting violated in pleasant ways. And the guests' experience was basically unchanged because they didn't have really much expectation at all, except that the wine would keep flowing, and sure enough, it did. And those who hadn't been sauced so much to the point of not being able to taste the difference probably had the minor pleasant surprise of, wow, this is a good vintage, and the rest of the people were just having a good time. The wedding families, well, they experienced something that has, can only be described as social resurrection. They were on the brink of social humiliation and possible financial ruin. That close! And then complete reversal. It's like being on the verge of death and coming back to life, not only sort of rescued from the brink, but even healthier and stronger than when you went into the imminent danger. And what did the disciples experience? Well, the, the scriptures tell us right at the end, verse 11, this, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee and thus revealed his glory. And his disciples put their faith in him. What the disciples experienced and what we experience through their memory in telling this story, what they experienced was revelation. Nobody else did. Everybody else experienced 
what their expectations allowed them to, and the disciples experienced their expectations not only confirmed, but surprisingly blown away. They expected Messiah to reveal himself, but they did not expect one who would come and be incognito, who would start behind the scenes at a party rather than in front of things on a war horse at the head of an army. And they experienced the revelation of a Messiah who rescues the helpless from shame rather than casting oppressors off their seats of power. And they experienced the revelation of a Messiah clearly capable of revolutionary actions, yet perplexingly intent on obscurity. A man stunningly and unsettlingly confident in very strange methods, and a man weirdly attuned to something he kept calling his hour, his unique hour, the first of many strange statements they would hear from the lips of Jesus and have no clue what he was talking about. And John, the master writer here, says he revealed his glory. Well, that's certainly not what they would have called it at that moment. They would have called it power. What John means by glory is what he means at the beginning all the way through the end of his gospel. And Jesus defines his glory in two ways. His hour is his glory. And what is, it, what is his hour? It is his raising up on the cross. His glory is his sacrificial death. The disciples didn't see it yet. They saw it in hindsight. Because this is not a story simply about a miracle at a wedding. This is a sign. A sign of his glory. The first of the signs of his glory. Of what his glory would mean. And if his glory is his hour, and his hour is his death, what is the meaning going on here about wine at a wedding? This is what it is. This is a story of our being able to expect of Jesus to be with us. Do you remember two weeks ago when I gave you the, the theme song of Epiphany? Da, 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 da. With, for, as, us. With, for, as, us. This is Jesus showing us again that he is with us, that he is for us, and he, he is acting as us. He is with us to move us beyond repeated ritual cleansing. Why does he choose purifying jars and then turn water into wine? 
Well, wine is for celebrating. Water is for washing. And Jesus knows that his death is going to take us beyond repeated ritual cleansing about moving from dirty to clean and pure to pure, common to sacred, unprepared to ready, defiled to holy, sinful to righteous, illegal to legal. He is moving the whole human enterprise beyond temporary fixes into a radical new creation. And that is what his crucifixion does. His crucifixion makes purification and opens the way to celebration. That's one thing he's doing. And we can expect him to be with us in changing that storyline from repeated crisis cleansing to once and for all purity and readiness for celebration. And Jesus also moves us from focusing on deeds of shame and honor, which is exactly what the family and the servants who are in crisis are focused on. They are focused on how deeply shamed they will be. The master of ceremonies is focusing on how a missed opportunity for honor has gone by for a young whippersnapper who didn't quite know the social ropes. And yet Jesus is moving everybody beyond the question of shame and honor because he's going to the cross to bear the shame of the world and to receive the honor of God. Jesus is changing everything and he is giving a foretaste, a glimpse of what he did, what he is doing, what he will do through his cross work by being with us there. And Jesus is also showing us that we can expect him to be for us in embracing the Father's way of redemption because he does come first to the helpless, to the least, to the lost, to the lonely, in other words, to just about everybody except those very few who have had exceptional circumstances, and let's be biblical about it, divine intervention to raise them up to a place of power and honor. And even they, in their moments of truth, know that they're as shameful as the rest of us. And Jesus comes to be for us, embracing the Father's way of redemption, to embrace obscurity, to embrace the Father's timing, to, to embrace the Father's way of going to the cross as the way to the wedding. That's what Jesus is doing for us because we could not have imagined getting there on our own. This is a story in the words of an amazing song by a band called the City Harmonic. This is the story of the Son of God hanging on the cross for me. But it ends with a bride and groom in a wedding by a glassy sea. Oh, death, where is your sting? Because I'll be there singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord.
This is a story of a bride in white waiting on her wedding day, anticipation welling up inside while the groom is crowned the king. Death, where's your sting? Because we will be there singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the one who was and is and is to come. This, my friends, is a story of a bride in white singing on her wedding day, and all together, all that was and is can stand before this bride and say with her, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb. This is what that story reveals. That's why it's at a wedding. That's why water goes to wine. That's why Jesus hangs in incognito in anticipation of the hour, the hour his Father has planned, the hour no one sees coming, not even the devil, the hour on the cross when with us in our shame, for us in our sin, and as us in our pain, he goes down into death to bring us out with him to that wedding. And in hindsight, the disciples know this, and they look back and they say, when did Jesus start telling that story to us? It was at Cana in a moment that we almost would have missed if we hadn't been hanging outside with Jesus around the servants and the purifying jars. Do you see how important our expectations can be to our experiences, friends? Do we expect of Jesus to simply fix a few things in our lives occasionally and serve us? Or do we expect him to be the Messiah of the universe who is not content with cleansing us occasionally or helping us out of an occasional social scrape or indelicate set of circumstances, but rather renewing us and all things? And can we not have just a little patience with him? and with others, and with ourselves, that in renewing the entire universe, he actually kind of knows what he's doing. And he will do exactly what he has said in his word. He will bring all things into conformity with his own character and the glory of his Father. And it will be So our response is the response that the disciples had. Our response should be what the disciples did. Is they saw his glory and put their faith in him. When you put your trust in someone, what you're doing in that moment is yielding control of some circumstances. Because now those circumstances include that person you're trusting, and you're saying that person has a right to exercise unpredictable influence in this set of circumstances, and I will yield to that influence. That's part of what trust means. 
And trusting also means that we're yielding our expectations about how others are going to behave and how we are going to behave. We're saying I'm no longer withholding my affection and my approval from this other person. And I'm saying, I can trust this guy. I can trust this gal. They may disappoint me, and I can't control that. But they might not. And I can't control that either. In other words, trust is always about softening an expectation into a hope. You might think of it this way. It's about melting down our idols. Our idols are expectations that have hardened into demands that we make on reality and on others and on God. Our expectations don't have to harden that way, but they so often do. And boy, when somebody violates them, it's like they have knocked down our God. So trust is always about allowing someone else to have influence and control over those liquid hopes. And so the question that we face is the question the disciples faced. Will we let our expectations about Messiah melt and flow into hope? And we will just yield to Jesus as somebody who might just know what he's doing in saving the entire universe. And now we're going to go along with him patiently. Yes, expectantly, but mostly hopefully, not demanding. Because trust is always about worship. It's about who you recognize as valuable enough to yield your control to to yield your well-being to. It's about worship. That's what Jesus did on the cross, is that he yielded himself and us to his heavenly Father, trusting that his heavenly Father had him and us in holy and good purposes and would bring us out safe on the other side this table and the sign that we participate in every day is a foretaste of the wedding that Jesus has guaranteed for us on the cross. And we get a sip, a taste of the life that is to come. Let's trust this host to bring us all the way. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more about All Saints Anglican Cathedral and our mission work in Amesbury and throughout New England, visit our website 
allsaintsamesbury.org. Take away the sin of the world. Have mercy upon us. Mercy, mercy, mercy upon us. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world.